0: Hello. When the world looks back on the COVID pandemic, there may be particular times and places that stick in our collective memory. The first scenes from Wuhan, perhaps the way the first wave of the virus overwhelmed the hospitals of northern Italy. But some of the most terrible images have come this year from India and the devastating impact of what we now refer to as the Delta variant. This calamity exposed the political, policy and infrastructural weaknesses of that country. Under the populist leadership of Narendra Modi, India seemed already to be a country teetering on the edge of despotism. What then are now the prospects for a country long referred to as the world's biggest democracy?
1: This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the
0: RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to be joined by the journalist and author, Deb Roy Chowdhury, who has co authored with Professor John Keane a very powerful new book. The book is entitled To Kill a Democracy India's Passage to Despotism. Hi, Deb. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for your kind words. It's great to talk to you, but one of the fascinating things about this book is that it is dedicated to describing the failings of the Indian state, the scale of social division, the growth of despotic government, and yet it was written before the pandemic ran out of control this spring. So my first question, Deb, before we get into the arguments in the book is how has that tragedy unfolded before the eyes of the world, how has that changed things in India? Would you be writing a different book now, given what's happened in the last three or four months?
1: Actually not, because as someone who has read the book, you know that we have outlined the various aspects of state failure that we are witnessing in India today. And uh, anybody who has studied how the Indian state operates, its capacities, its deficiencies, would not actually be very surprised by what's going on in India today. This entire COVID catastrophe to me is a sign of grievous state incapacity. So what we are seeing today in India is actually a lot of Indian media outlets themselves are calling India now a failed state. It has long been called a flailing state. And so however way you describe it, the bottom line is that this is a weak state. And this weak state has been in the making for decades now. There are various aspects to it, as we can describe later. So whatever is happening today shouldn't be a surprise. That's all that I'm saying. And I'm not surprised by what's happening today. And I would definitely write the book differently, because I saw what was happening in India. And I was not sold by the idea that India was selling to the world of an emerging nation, emerging power. And this is where we are now.
0: So I get that. And, And the book, you know, could be subtitled The Tragedy, waiting to happen. And now it has happened. But I'm interested, Deb, as how you think this will play out. So the impact of the virus on politics has been highly variable. Arguably, in fact, I would argue that Joe Biden only really won because of the pandemic and because of Donald Trump's disastrous decision to focus on discrediting the science rather than praising American efforts towards a vaccine. I think that one political decision was catastrophic for Trump. In Britain, we have seen that despite the fact that arguably Britain has managed the crisis pretty badly, the death rates are very high, Boris Johnson is riding high in the polls. And there seems to be a sense that because the vaccination program is pretty advanced, everything else is almost forgotten and forgiven. Maybe things will change when there's a proper inquiry. How are things poised in India? How deeply has this affected people's perception of their country and their government?
1: This has affected Indians very deeply, especially those who have faced personal losses, who have had to run around looking for oxygen cylinders, hospital beds or uh, wood for cremation or a piece of land uh, or to bury their dead. So those people who have experienced this firsthand and I have had a few personal losses myself. I'm sorry, Deb. Thank you. And um, these people, they won't, of course, forget what happened and, and the way the state let them down. But politically speaking, we have to remember that the elections are still three years away and the opposition is as headless as it was six months away. And there is no sign of an opposition force rising to take on Narendra Modi. And three years is a long time to reset the narrative, which I'm sure he will manage to do. So after three years, when the blame has been apportioned uh, to the state governments and it has been spread around, there is more vaccination, then there is a possibility that this might all be framed as actually a success story of how Modi overcame one of the biggest epidemics in history.
0: Yeah, because one of the characteristics of the Modi style of government, you I noticed in the book, you studiously avoid the use of the word populist, but you talk about despotic government. But one of the characteristics of this style of strongman government is that it's intensely political in the sense that it isn't based in any kind of sense of a deeper ethic or or even probably purpose. Its only purpose is winning power, extending power, deepening power, abusing power. And one of the consequences of that is that these people in power are very good at destroying opposition because they are unencumbered by any sense of public duty. They are simply focused on victory. And I think that's one of the consistent themes we see around the world is the effectiveness of this style of despotic democracy in kind of breaking up the coherence of opposition forces and it is the capacity of opposition forces to find some kind of collective cause which is critical to whether or not this former government survives and it seems to me you're saying that about India that the critical factor now is that Modi's capacity to drive confusion and fear into his opposition and the opposition's inability to get its act together this is why we shouldn't assume that despite the fact that india's had this terrible catastrophe it will impact on modi's popularity
1: yeah it might not but i would like to add here matthew that we often tend to go easy on on the opposition when it when we discuss populist politics and demagoguery or despotism but the opposition is as responsible for decline of a democracy as the rulers because it is the opposition's job to not be overwhelmed by the rulers. So if the opposition allows itself or to be decimated, it is also a factor in the backsliding of democracy and which is what we are seeing in India today. And the second thing is that you mentioned examples of the US, UK I would like to also point out here that the institutions, that the democratic institutions, that the governing institutions in India are in far worse shape than in any of the countries that you're comparing it to. So a situation like this, a mishandling of the situation of this scale, as we have seen in India, would have immediate repercussion in legislative political party platforms. For example, If you had real democracy in the sense that you had vibrant political parties with internal democracy and you had a functioning legislature where people actually debate, are free to debate what they need to debate, then you would have seen these or these mishandlings that we have seen in India to be taken up first in the party forum and then in the legislature. None of this will happen in India. As we have described in the book, there is virtually no internal democracy in any political party in India. And any leader who enjoys an absolute majority in the legislature does not only control the executive, but is in full control of the legislature as well. So there will never be any political debates in or outside the House and in or outside the party, So there is no immediate threat to Modi's leadership at all. So all he has to do now is to stay steady on course and rebuild a part of his image that he has lost. But again, bear in mind that his core voter base remains as dedicated to him as they were before the pandemic. This is the core voter base which is charged by Modi's unapologetic Hindutva. For this core voter base has not left Modi. And also there is one more thing to remember, is that without Narendra Modi, the BJP is no different from other parties. In the last election, there were surveys which showed that one third of the people who voted for the BJP said they voted because of Modi. So you take Modi out of the equation, these people are not interested in the party anymore. So there is essentially no threat to Narendra Modi politically at this point.
0: Yeah, no. And of course the differences between India and America and Britain, Hungary, Russia are immense. But I did notice parallels and and this parallel of the individual and in the party, the Trump Republicans, Johnson Conservatives. Modi BJP you know the charismatic leader is part of this story but let's go back to the core argument of the book it's a vivid and subtly made argument with with lots of dimensions and in a way it's almost impossible to compress you cover so much ground but it i guess i took from it an idea that the founders of indian democracy you know understood from the beginning that it could not thrive without economic development and social inclusion, and that while arguably the former economic development has taken place, the latter, social justice, social inclusion certainly has not. I guess the question, Deb, is were the chances of success for Indian democracy, particularly coming off the back of British misrule, were were the chances of success always small, do you think?
1: Indian democracy actually did quite well, if you look at it from another angle. India? As a post-colonial state, it did not go the way of, say, Pakistan or Zimbabwe. It did not become a dictatorship. Nehru could have been a dictator after the first few years of independence, when all the senior leaders of independence died one after the other. He was the last remaining leader of the independence movement. And he could have well turned India into a dictatorship. But India did not. I mean, there have always been struggles. I mean, no democracy is perfect. All democracies are work in progress and so is India. But I think after Nehru, and actually beginning with Nehru, with the choice of economic development model that we adopted, and then after Nehru, the slow decline of its, uh, the quality of its politics, these two together combined in, in a way which slowly eviscerated India of its democratic possibilities. But it did actually begin on a very high note. If you look at the constitution, it's an incredibly progressive text from day one, you had universal adult suffrage, irrespective of your religion or gender or property holdings or educational standards. So in a lot of ways, it was a very ambitious project And it did meet a lot of its goals that it started out with for, say, after 75 years, nearly 75 years of independence, I can tell you that, yes, there is a lot of cynicism about Indian politics. Indian people have been let down badly. But there is also a very healthy irreverence of politicians. There is also a great individual assertion of rights. Even if you go down to the village level and, and talk to a farmer or somebody who is very poor, you know, he or she will have vague notions of the rights enshrined in the constitution. I think that is a big success, if you ask me. But yes, there are these failings too that we have written about, these imperfections.
0: But it seems to me that you're making a, an important Argument in the book about the conditions for democracy to thrive, and this takes us to a kind of an ambiguity about the notion of democracy, because in some senses the notion of democracy is that all it is really about, ultimately, is I mean, of course, there's notions of rule of law and due process and free opposition and media and all of that. I accept all of that, and all of those things have been. Jeopardized in modern india. but but in a sense, notion democracy is that what fundamentally matters is elections and power being able to change depending on the outcomes of elections. And that if people choose leaders who promote enormous levels of inequality or even leaders who allow the apparatus of the state to collapse and massive policy failure, well, you know that's, what democracy is. If that's what people choose, then that's what the outcome is. So there's that kind of notion, that procedural notion of democracy, that it's really just about a kind of electoral process. And then there's this deeper notion of democracy, which was there at the beginning of the, you know, in the Indian constitution, which is that democracy has to be based also in social rights. It has to be based in the notion of people being able to fully participate, kind of Amartya Sen's kind of notions of participation as the foundation for citizenship, people being able to articulate their desires, to be able to express themselves, to have some roots to personal fulfillment, and I think you want you're arguing that democracy in the end cannot succeed without governments that are committed to that idea of social development and social justice. So, in a sense, what you're saying is democracy can only thrive in a reasonably progressive political context. Would that be a fair characterization of your argument?
1: Progressive economic context as well, where you have a minimal notion of equality. I mean, the entire thing about democracy is about equality. So me and you can be in a democracy. We can, me and you can have self-government only when we see each other as equals, But when you have entrenched inequality on the scale that we see in India, it is kind of difficult for us to see each other as equals and each other as dignified entities with their own rights in the democracy. And I think it becomes difficult for people to rise and defend each other's dignity when the rulers choose to violate that dignity, so equality and dignity; these are at the heart of any democracy, which is why we see the word fraternity so much in in constitutions all over the world. And when you have a mass of people who are, or to borrow James Baldwin's word, disesteemed. When you have a large mass of people who are disesteemed, citizens are turned into subjects and uh, the rulers have the license to arbitrary rule. This is what happens in a despotism, this is what is happening in a democracy, that grounded down by the daily indignities, you lose the idea that you have rights, that you can protect your rights and that you can protect other people's rights. So you can meaningfully participate in politics because you're so busy, preoccupied, trying to stay alive that politics becomes secondary to you. And so I would say that you would need some kind of uh, progressive economics as well as politics for democracy to survive,
0: to thrive. So I think this is such an important argument, Deb. And obviously you're co-author of this book with John Keane, who's one of our one of the world's leading scholars of democracy and history of democracy and the concept of democracy. And there is an argument in this book which I recognized from his previous work around despotism. And this is the notion that just because people are elected does not mean that we have a democratic society if those people who are elected then dismantle the other elements that we associate with democracy, such as a free press, such as allowing the opposition to have a voice such as the rule of law. But it seems to me you're then making this second argument, which I think is very important, because this debate about how we renew democracy is a debate taking place all around the world. And the argument here is, it seems to me implicit in your book, That a government cannot be understood as being democratic unless it is committed to improving the circumstances, creating the circumstances, the social and economic circumstances in which democracy can flourish. And that is a substantive argument, and it reminds me slightly of an argument that we've a discussion we've had on on this podcast a few weeks ago about deliberative democracy and when I was talking to colleagues who are experts in deliberative democracy, I said to them look we have to recognize that deliberation, the process of structured public engagement is not just a process of an argument about process because we know that when citizens deliberate, fully, when they're allowed to deliberate fully, they are likely to reach more progressive conclusions. They are likely to think more about the long term. They are likely to think more about their fellow citizens. They're likely to think more about their own responsibilities as citizens. So in a sense, we have to own up to this. We have to say, look, as advocates of democracy, we're not merely advocating a process. As advocates of deliberative democracy, we're not merely advocating for process. We recognize the democracy can only flourish if those who win elections are committed to enhancing the context in which democracy flourishes. And that I think is that is an important new argument. I think it's correct. What of course it will lead to is people saying, what you're saying is you only want democracy if it generates the conclusions and outcomes that you want. That is the danger of the argument, that it can almost appear almost anti-democratic, because you're saying, well, if people elect someone like Modi that isn't a democratic outcome, even if the vote suggests that it is.
1: Yes, true. And uh, this is why we have allotted so much space in our book to what we call social foundations, because we don't think that this is an aspect of democratic studies that you often see in books on democracy. Democracy is not just about the study of uh, high level dynamics of political parties and Elections and legislatures, governments or civil service, bureaucracies, judiciary, media, etc., which is what we often see in analysis and studies of democracy. These are all what we think are considered as upper-level institutions. But these rest on and draw their strength from the social foundations of people living in these mediated social settings. So this lived experience of people is what these upper-level institutions draw their legitimacy from. And if this lived experience of democracy is not living up to the promise of a democratic life, then I think these upper-level institutions, they gradually lose their relevance and legitimacy, which is what is happening in a lot of democracies, as you know, in around the world, not just in India.
0: So the question then is, Deb, the book ends almost, it's almost as if you have to give us some hope at the end of the book, because a lot of the book is very bleak, the first half about this, the failure of state institutions and policies to deliver social inclusion and broad-based economic development, and the second half of the book about this despotic form of politics, which is, as you say, it's not just a phenomenon of Modi, but but has been part of the Indian picture, not just and also not just at federal level, but at local and state level. But there's a bit of hope at the end of the book. Now, if we take this argument, given the position that India is now in, it is difficult to believe that the kind of foundations for universal social citizenship can be laid in, I don't know, less than... 20 years. If that were to happen over the next 20 years India, it would be a remarkable achievement. But that requires, as it were, Democrats to be in power and for the citizenship to give them those Democrats the time and the space to do the work that is required to create the conditions in which democracy can flourish. And I guess, is that an impossible hope? Is it that the work that needs to be done in India to provide those foundations is just too difficult for any politician to win consent to do, and therefore there will always be this vulnerability to despotism.
1: One of the things that we have outlined in the book, and and we say it quite explicitly, is that there is an idea that Indian democracy began to fail after Modi showed up. But Indian democracy has been failing Indians for a very long time, long, long before Modi showed up. So when you say that can it happen if we give democrats the time? Well, India gave what you call democrats seventy years, sixty-five years at least. Nothing much happened. So, I mean, I'm sure nothing much happened would be uh, would be an unfair statement. Of course, there has been progress. There has been a lot of progress, but not enough progress, as as we can see from the in-your-face inequality in India now. Whether um, Democrats will deliver if they get the chance again, and I don't know really because I wouldn't draw a very hard line between Modi and, and the rest of the political folks because as we have explained in the book that these despotic tendencies cut across political lines. Modi and Modi's party, they are a particularly amplified version of the pathologies that despotism sees. But other parties are not that different in power. Where does hope lie then, Deb? Hope lies in the fact that democracy is like a, a bad habit. So people, Indian politicians, often Modi, for example, he likes to think that he will probably turn India into China, a success story. But the people in India, they have different aspirations. They are, after 75 years of democratic politics, their democratic instincts have been sharpened and they question, they protest. They don't take things lying down. So I think that is the biggest hope, that people are still, even now, They will go to extraordinary length at the cost of their well-being or to protest or to demand answers from the rulers. This is the democratic instinct. This is the hope.
0: One of the notions that comes up in the book quite a lot is the comparison with China and the greater progress made in China, particularly in terms of the kind of functioning of the state and provisions of education and health care. And of course, the parallels are difficult to avoid. I mean, I think almost any day India will pass China in terms of its population, for example, and become the most populous nation on earth. Yeah. Is it useful to think about these comparisons between India and China? And what should we draw from that comparison, those of us who are Democrats?
1: These are actually very relevant um, examples. And And there is a reason why we have sprinkled the book with these comparisons. It's not just with China, even with countries like Vietnam, which are not democracies. I think, as you know, the world is in the middle of this debate, this ideological debate of our lifetime between democratic way of life and the possibility of development without democracy as the China model shows. So if Democrats need to win this debate, or they need to particularly look at the example of India, because this is a country where we are losing that debate every day by not being able to create social well-being and equitable development, even though we have on paper, at least on paper, democracy. And we are losing this argument in India and we are losing this argument in a lot of other places, including the U.S. And so if we want to recapture the imagination of the world, if, if democracy wants to recapture the imagination of the world, it has to prove that it can take care of its people. And I don't think we are in a point of history, at least in, in India. Where we can confidently say that we can.
0: I think Deb that phrase, if democracy wants to succeed, it has to demonstrate it can look after its people. I think that's that's absolutely crystallizes the argument. And, and something which the book really kind of changed my view on. There's there's one issue, Deb, I want to cover though before we finish. And that is this is a book about democracy, not about religion. But it is interesting, isn't it, how often religion is part of this kind of despotic story you know the bjp is a hindu party hindu nationalism and anti muslim rhetoric and action is very much part of the kind of modi strategy for political control and power but it is for religious organizations a risky strategy to throw your lot in with the despots we may for example be aware of the kind of brazen hypocrisy of the evangelicals who supported trump but what's probably less well known is that religious belief and observance in the US has declined at an unprecedented rate in the last decade that the behavior of the religious right seems to have had a major effect in discrediting religious belief amongst Americans who are not fully aligned what do you see as being the relationship between religion and democracy in india going forward and and is the democratic struggle inseparable from a kind of the secular struggle
1: Matthew, I wouldn't wouldn't call it religion per se. I I would rather frame it as identity. In India, it happens to be, the BJP happens to be using religion as the core identity. In the US, it is probably race more than religion, which is white nationalism. So in other countries, it might be some other component of identity that a despotic government or party tends to utilize or to mobilize people. So in India, religion is being used as a tool of mobilization, as we know. And it is being used to drown out all other kinds of identities, because India, as you know, is a very diverse country, No, no two states are similar, you cross borders from one state to another, and you can almost be in a different country altogether. But what the BJP has done successfully is that it has managed to decimate all other identities, at least among its core voters, and establish the Hindu identity as the overarching identity of Indians. And whether this is a risky gambit or not, well, it is working so far for the party. It is not working so well for the nation or for secular politics. But if if we go down this road for another five, ten years, India's constitution could be rewritten altogether, who knows? Because that is the end game, after all or to rewrite India's constitution as a Hindu state rather than a secular state. And if BJP continues to be in power and, and or to be honest and to be fair to the BJP, the BJP or its ideological parent, which is called the RSS, the Rashtriya Sang, which is the umbrella Hindu organization, they have never tried to hide this goal. And they have never tried to hide the fact that they never accepted India as a secular republic, that it was a mistake to declare India as a secular republic. The or the founding leaders of India should have made India a Hindu state because that is what India is. And so I won't say that it's uh, risky. It is for people who believe in Hindu state, in the goal of a Hindu state. It is something they are working for and they might... They might just make it in five,
0: ten years. Who knows? So final question, Deb, and you've referred to this before, I think, but in the end, the hope in India must lie surely in alliances which understand their kind of common dependence upon a real democracy. Alliances of those genuinely committed to the constitution and the diversity and inclusion, those committed to women's struggle for equality. You talk quite a lot about feminist struggles towards the end uh, of the book and their importance. And I I think also potentially the environmental movement, new forms of energy, possibly decentralised, the impact that that might have on empowering communities as well. It's these kinds of alliances, but based in a common understanding of the need for real democracy. That's where hope lies. Would would you agree, Deb? How do you mean real democracy? I mean, democracy, a social democracy, a democracy based, as you argue in this book, not just upon elections, nor even just upon the fuller account of democracy in terms of civil rights and, and the rest, which is threatened by despotism, but the idea that democracy can only work if all the citizens of that democracy are truly able to participate.
1: Able to participate, yes, and but we have to balance this with the idea of smart despotism, about which uh, John has written extensively that the despots that the smart despots of our time, or they also ensure that the people are taken care of. So, you will see in in India, Modi is the first national leader, probably, who talked about toilets. We didn't uh, hear much about. toilets in like 60, 70 years of our independence, or that this was an issue that people do not have access to their own toilets. And so Modi started this drive nationwide to build toilets. And now, I think the next big project is to provide water because as we have written in the book, only 17% of Indian rural households are actually supplied by piped water. So the big next project is water. So, So these are things which are also the despots are also quite good at providing. And these are also elements of a democratic life. This might seem odd that a despot is providing the elements of social foundations which are important for democracy but that that is how smart despots operate so at one level oh, they provide these components which are necessary to improve your social life your political participation your economic progress but at another level your political rights are slowly slowly curbed and the polity in general takes the shape of a despotism. So it will also depend on how well the despots in India can provide for the people. Because if they can, then there is a possibility that the Democrats might never win this battle. If Modi can do both. So far, he has failed.
0: So that opens up a fascinating other conversation about whether in the end, despotism can ever be effective in terms of achieving change in people's lives. Now, we haven't got time for that debate, but it's one of the many fascinating issues opened up by your book, To Kill a Democracy, India's Passage to Despotism. Deborah Chowdhury, I'm incredibly grateful to you for joining me today. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the RSA.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change
1: happen.